You guys go ahead and have a seat. I love that we do that song on this Sunday. As Dan said, this is the first Sunday of Lent. And Lent is this journey towards Easter, but Lent is also this journey towards Good Friday, which is the Friday before Easter, which is the day that we recognize as the day that Jesus was crucified. And so we are starting this journey um, to the cross. And I don't know if you've ever engaged in, in the Lent journey. We started this at E3, I don't know, eight, eight years ago. We, we had, uh, to my knowledge, um, E3 hadn't really participated in, in Lent or even, even Good Friday too much. And Mark and I would sit around and we would talk. And, you know, I think there's this, this great truth to life is that um, if you don't engage in shadow, light ceases to have all the meaning that it can have. And Easter is, is the day of the brightest light of our year. But if we don't also remember the shadow of Good Friday, of suffering, of, of crucifixion, of death even, uh, sometimes Easter loses a little bit of of the engagement that it has. And so, uh, as Dan said, some of us gathered on, on Ash Wednesday and we remembered our mortality and we remembered our brokenness. And the journey of Lent is a journey that's really meant to be a time of, of reflection on your life, of thinking about the ways that maybe something in your life needs to be looked at or, or fixed or examined. And for us at E3, uh, E3 has also always been, or Lent has always been a time of really intense focus on Jesus. You know, so if you look back at all of the series that we do right around this time, I mean, last year we did a series on, on the seven deadly sins, which is a chipper series to invite your friends to. <laughs> but uh, typically every, every year at this time, we do something that is Jesus-focused, and we just dig into who he is and what he calls us to and the, and the invitation that he gives to us. And so we're going to do that this year as well with this series that we're calling The Road. And I'm going to set up the series. I'm going to talk about just what, where it comes from. And then I want to talk about what I think the invitation of Lent is for us this year. So to, to begin with, the series really comes out of this one verse in Luke's gospel. So in chapter nine of, of the gospel of Luke, uh, verse 51, there's this little sentence that comes out and it says, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And that little sentence has always resonated so deeply with me that there's this sort of critical moment in Luke's gospel and in Jesus's life where he knows that it is time to set out for Jerusalem. And my understanding of Jesus is that he knows what is waiting for him in Jerusalem. He knows how his story is going to play out because he knows when he comes there, the religious authorities, the political authorities, they're not gonna like what he has to say. And that combination of uh, religious people angry at you and political people angry at you uh, doesn't always lead, it usually does not lead to good things. So Jesus knows what's happening in Jerusalem. He knows what's waiting. And yet the scriptures say 
that when he knew it was time, he set his face resolutely to go there. And he started walking this road to Jerusalem. And so that's where the imagery came to me of like, you know what? Jesus walked this road to Jerusalem even though he knew what it was going to cost him when he got there. And I think just like Jesus walks that road, the first invitation of Lent is for us to walk that road as well. And so what I did is I just went through the scriptures of stories that, uh, and, and teachings of Jesus that I felt would push our community and would challenge me and would challenge you. Because uh, the road to Jerusalem is not meant to be this road of like, you know, I don't know, the image comes of like the yellow brick road. I mean, I know Dorothy didn't have all that great of a time on it at times, but it was a brick road and it was made of gold or, so, so, or at least appeared to be. The road to Jerusalem is not meant to be easy, but it is meant to change your life, right? So, so that's where the imagery came from. And I wanna just kind of unpack a little bit of the significance of that verse in Luke, uh, Luke 9, 51. And you can see the significance if you looked at the structure, the literary structure of Luke. So I want to just going to bring this slide up. Luke's gospel can be divided into a few uh, main sections. Can we bring that slide up, please? Uh, so boldly speaking and quickly speaking, um, the prologue, Luke has a four-verse prologue. He has a short two, one, two, one to two chapter examine of Jesus's birth and his childhood. The preparation for Jesus's ministry is about a chapter long. Then Jesus has this ministry in Galilee, which is where his hometown is. That's about five chapters long in Luke's gospel. And then 9 verse 51 kicks off the road to Jerusalem. And how long is that section? It's 10 chapters. It is the largest section of Luke's gospel. Luke devotes more time to that than any other time. Jesus gets to Jerusalem. Uh, I love the fact you see the Jerusalem ministry. Doesn't go very well. It's one chapter long. Jesus gets to Jerusalem. Uh, his ministry doesn't go well. His suffering and death is about a chapter. And then the resurrection and exaltation. But you see that 9 verse 51 is a key key component of Luke's gospel. It changes the tone and the tenor and the direction of Luke's story and Jesus's ministry, right? And so that's another reason it always stood out to me. In, in uh, scholarly circles, 9 through 19, the ch chapter 9 through 19 is referred to as the travel narrative. And you see some of the most amazing stories and challenging stories of Jesus's whole life happen in these 10 chapters. So a lot, of the, the, a lot of the stuff we'll be looking at comes out of these 10 chapters, I'll tell you, but not all of them. Uh, because I just kind of wanted to take a step back and I didn't want to isolate it just to these 10 chapters. I want to say, okay, well, what else, what else does Jesus just challenge me on as I walk my road to Jerusalem this year and, and every year? So that's where it comes from. That's where we're going. And today I want to set up this topic of... of uh, of what it means to follow Jesus. Because again, the verse says he's, he's on this road. And if you know anything about Jesus, he's not on the road by himself, right? He's got followers with him. They're going with him. 
They've been going with him. He hangs out with them. He teaches them. And in that function, Jesus is, uh, he is embodying and he's functioning uh, in, in a role that we might call a, a rabbi. Anybody ever heard the term rabbi? It's a common Jewish term. Um, the term rabbi doesn't actually arise until probably the second or third century. But just looking at the way Jesus behaves and looking at what we know about rabbis in the third century, we think that there are already some beginnings of the rabbinical system in Jesus's time. And so people say, you know what? There is a teaching element to Jesus's life. And teaching for a rabbi is intrinsically related to walking around, to traveling, because that's how his disciples really learned from him. To follow your rabbi, uh, there's a phrase that the, that the Jews used. It was, to follow and learn from your rabbi was to be covered in the dust of his, ra- of his sandals because you're walking behind him and he's kicking up the dust uh, from his flip-flops all over your robe and everything. So if you followed your rabbi well, you were said to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And so our rabbi, or my rabbi, sets off on the road to Jerusalem, right? And just so you know, there are other roles that Jesus fulfills in the New Testament. We're not gonna spend much time on them today, but there are elements to his life that he embodies like Messiah, like a prophet, again, rabbi, like the sacrifice, the lamb of God, like the high priest. And also in the New Testament, you heard him refer to as Lord, which isn't just a churchy term in the first century. It's a, it's a political term. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So uh, we're gonna take a look at what it means to be a rabbi just briefly, and then I really want to spend a lot of time just examining some, some thoughts about where we're at today on our journey on the road and where we might be going to, or where you might be going to. So the first thing, uh, as I said, rabbi really at its essence means teacher. To be a rabbi is to be a teacher. And there are lots of little hints in the, in the Gospels of Jesus functioning this way. I'll just give you this one for free. You don't have to pay extra for this. Whenever you see in the Gospels Jesus sit down, particularly in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, it'll say that Jesus went up on a mountain and he sat down. That is a rabbinical uh, posture. Teachers, rabbis in the first century, they sat down. To speak. So whenever Matthew says Jesus sat down, that is essentially a clue to us to say, oh, this is a rabbinical, a teaching time, all right? And there are other things that Jesus does uh, that hint at his rabbinical identity. So if you're a teacher, you obviously have students. And in the New Testament, uh, students are called disciples, or the Greek word is mathetes, all right? And so uh, I've said this before, Jesus has a varying level of, of disciples. He's got uh, the 12, he's got the three, Peter, James, and John. He's got a larger group of 72. Uh, some people have tried to number what, how many disciples he may have had. Some people come up with a number of like, he may have had as little of, as 150 disciples when he uh, was crucified. Now think about that. Think about how those, those first 150 people and how many Christians are there today, Right? Started with those, that small group of people. Uh, and so a rabbi would be uh, wandering around uh, in first century Israel and Judea. And as a, as a student would 
would seek to follow him, the student would come up to, or the potential student would come up to a rabbi and he, said, he would say, Rabbi, I wish to follow you. And it was almost like a formal statement. Rabbi, I desire to follow you. And at that point, the rabbi would turn and say, come and follow me. And so Jesus does this, but he, if, if you know the gospel stories at all, he subverts this process because in the gospels, nobody of the, of the early disciples, uh, none of the 12 actually come up to Jesus and say that. Jesus actually goes looking for disciples. And without waiting to be asked, he just says, hey, come and follow me. Hey, come and follow me. And if you know the gospels as well, you know he doesn't really pick the best and the brightest. They're bumbling, stumbling, fumbling around ancient Israel. But that's, what, that's the way he, he operates. He is a go and get them type of rabbi. And so um, that's the way it looks in the first century. Now, when, when we fast forward all the way to our reality, the 21st century, if, if you're new to E3, we have a mission statement. Our mission statement at E3 is to make, mature, mobilize, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We make, mature, and mobilize disciples. That's our desire. That's why we exist um, we have a process for doing that that is actually identical to the mission statement. So our process for making disciples is to make them, mature them, and mobilize them. What, let me put that in uh, other terms. Um, you, as, as participating in a worship gathering, you are part of the making part of the process of just coming here and getting in a space where God can speak to you. The maturing part of the process is joining a growth, a growth group. Because over time, we believe that growth best happens in small groups of people who take their masks off, who are willing to be honest with each other, and also willing to let God speak into their lives. So maturing is all about being in a group, a growth group here. And then mobilizing is all about serving. This place does not run on staff paid power. It runs on you. So... Part of our process is getting involved in some kind of service thing. And we believe, and we've bet the farm essentially on this, that this, if you throw your heart into it, will produce a fully devoted follower of Jesus. If you're willing to come into a space and worship God, if you're willing to be honest with other people and let them speak into your life, and if you're willing to lay down your time, talents, and treasures in service, we believe that will produce a disciple of Jesus. That's where we're at. And I think this is significant, right? Like we do not, uh, our, our mission is not to make, make converts, right? You can just take off, uh, take off that second part. We don't exist just to make converts because Jesus in Matthew 28 says, go into all the world. And he said, make disciples, not converts. And the way I think of it is this way. It's like, you know, people can be converted to Jesus and that is awesome. That is awesome. But that's not the whole story. So the way I like to think of it is like, look, if you aim for converts, you will seldom get disciples. If you aim for disciples, usually you get converts thrown in as a bonus. So we just go ahead and aim for the whole deep, big bucket. And we count on the fact 
that people will encounter Jesus in radical ways and they will say, yes, I will convert, I will do whatever, I will turn around, turn my life upside down, just sign me on. But that's what we're about. And so as we start down the road uh, with these next 40 days, I I wanna offer five thoughts of what discipleship is, especially versus conversion, right? Um, so I'm just gonna go through five little categories, five thoughts of discipleship. I'd like you to think about maybe like where you're at or what might resonate with you. The first thought about discipleship, discipleship is that it is more than head knowledge. Think of discipleship as an apprenticeship to Jesus. Discipleship is not about sitting in a class and learning everything that you can learn about Jesus because If you hang around church people long enough, you will find people with all the right answers about Jesus, but not his heart. Amen? It's not about having the right answers. It's about having the right attitude. I love uh, that song. Again, there's a line in that song that says, uh, you know, lead me to the cross. And then there's a part where Lori just sang, to your heart, to your heart, to your heart. And, and I was reminded of a statement that I heard once that a lot of times, you know, you hear pastors and preachers and people talk about, we need to give our heart to Jesus. But did you ever realize that Jesus wants to give his heart to you? That he wants to take your heart that in, in Dr. Seuss terms, like the Grinch might be three sizes too small. And Jesus wants to take out your heart and give you his heart. And you don't get that just by learning. You get that by following the, in the dust of your rabbi. A guy named Dallas Willard who probably has written more and has more to say on discipleship than anybody I've ever read over the past 20, 30 years says this. Let me share this quote with you. A disciple or apprentice is simply someone who has decided to be with another person under appropriate conditions in order, listen, to become capable of doing what that person does or become what that person is. I think about when I was a young guitar player. I got my first guitar when I was 15, my first electric guitar when I was 15. I found a teacher. And I sat, and I had a couple different teachers uh, when I was young. I can't remember their names now, but one guy was, uh, was a pretty talented technical player, played uh, ska, was very good at ska, and, and taught me some good patterns. Uh, one, one guitar player I had was like a, uh, an 80s metal guy, uh, wore a unitard when he played shows. It was awesome. And neither of those guys, when I sat on Saturdays with them, neither of those guys did I just, was it just intellectual? I didn't go to them so I could just hear them talk about scales or I could hear him talk about the benefits of spandex menswear. (laughs) Why did I go to them? So I could learn to do what they did. So I could play guitar well, okay? Discipleship is not about classroom knowledge. It is about sitting at the feet of Jesus and saying, Jesus, I think you've called me to do the things you've, you do with the attitude that you do them. 
and ultimately even to become like you. That's the biblical, ver- that's the biblical vision of this. Willard also says this, and, and this, this kind of just put a poignant thought on, on if you really want to know what Jesus does and who he is, he lives in the kingdom of God and he applies that kingdom for the good of others and even makes it possible for them to enter it for themselves. So that's what Jesus does and that's what he invites us all to do to live in the kingdom fully. Not for our benefit, but for the good of others and to even make it possible for others to enter it as well. It's way beyond head knowledge. The second thing that discipleship is, is that it's a journey. It's not a one-time event. You know, conversion might happen one time in your life. There might be that one aha moment where you just turn around. But discipleship is an ongoing day-to-day thing. And it also is seldom linear. Discipleship has this way, at least in my life, of kind of being up and then backwards and then down and then circle around and haven't I been here before? But if you do it right... Even if you keep going round and round, you're actually going round and round in a direction, you know? So discipleship is really signing on to a long journey with Jesus. Not just saying, I'm going to go to a class and now I'm, now I'm a disciple. This doesn't work that way. It's an apprenticeship. An apprenticeship takes time. Third thing, and this is really clear, uh, so we're really clear about this. It is not about earning God's favor or earning God's love. Now, we spent two weeks uh, talking about Psalm 139, trying to hammer home this idea that God declares you his beloved. Before you're even born, he has declared, you are my beloved son and daughter. So don't think of discipleship as a way to, to, to uh, learn tricks for Jesus so that he will finally appreciate you or you can finally earn your way into his favor. That is not the way it's designed to work. The way it's designed to work is as a response to our belovedness, a response to grace, okay? We don't do this to earn it. We do it to say thank you. There's a movie that came out in the late 90s that really uh, had a a profound, deep, deep impact on my life and a lot of other people's lives. It's called Saving Private Ryan. Anybody remember the movie? Amazing movie. Declared uh, one of the finest war movies ever made. Depictions of combat that were both simultaneously like poignant and and tragic. Captured an awful lot. And um, I have a, just so you know, I kind of have a halo rule that if a movie's like 20 years old, I get to give away Spoilers. (laughs) Spoilers. <laughs> so uh, the movie begins and ends with an old man in a, in a, uh, a cemetery at Normandy. You guys remember this? It's, and, and he is with his family and he's looking for a gravestone. And then the, the story unfolds where um, the older gentleman in the graveyard is actually Matt Damon, a guy named Private Ryan. And he's looking for the headstone of, of a guy who's played by Tom Hanks. 
And if you remember, the, the, the end of the, the climax of the movie is when Hanks looks at Ryan as he's dying because Hanks has led a rescue mission to save Matt Damon. And it's turned out to be a suicide mission. He's lost every man in his squad. And he's, been, he's dying. And he looks at Damon and he says, anybody remember what he says? He says, earn this. And then uh, the movie ends with, with uh, you know, now an elderly Ryan crying and weeping. And I've heard this taught as like uh, that Ryan's character is, is suffering under this horrible burden of, of trying to earn your way into something. I never saw it that way. I never saw it that way. I saw this as a struggle to say thank you. And when Hank says, earn this, I heard that as saying, do you understand the depth of sacrifice that has been made? And can you say thank you? And that's the way I see discipleship. God has called me his beloved. He has set me free from sin and from a life that is destined to go over the edge of the canyon. And discipleship is my way of living well enough to say thank you. God, you've given me my life. Now, what can I do with it to just say thanks for the love that you've given me? So it doesn't earn it. It just says thank you. Fourth thing, discipleship is a journey into the unknown and this is uncomfortable for a lot of us because a lot of us are like, yeah, I'll go on a discipleship journey as long as I know how it ends, you know? And that's not the biblical vision of discipleship because the biblical vision of discipleship is a journey of faith. And from the very beginning of the Bible, when God calls a guy named Abram, it's a journey that sometimes goes up, sometimes goes down, sometimes seems to flatline, but it's a journey into the unknown. We can't determine what it looks like for ourselves, but it's exciting. And let me, let me, let me, uh, let me explain one other, one other aspect of this. You see, if you looked at a list of people that, that follow Jesus, that Jesus encounters, okay, in the Gospels, it would be a very interesting list. And we have a list of just different people that Jesus encounters, okay? Peter, James, and John in Mark 1, uh, the Gerasene guy who is demon-possessed in Mark 5, Zacchaeus in Luke 19, Nicodemus in John 3, Joseph of Arimathea who appears in a few Gospels in Luke 23, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, John 11, rich young ruler, Mark 12. You know what is different about all of these people? They're all called to do different things in their discipleship journey. So Peter, James, and John, Jesus finds them very early and they are called to leave their business and leave their families and be with Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. And if you know, they're part of the 12. Every one of the 12 disciples, as far as we know, is, is eventually martyred for their faith. So they, they have to give up everything eventually. The Gerasene is a demon-possessed guy that Jesus radically heals and you know what Jesus tells him? You can't come with me. 
The garrison says, can I come with you? Can I follow you? Literally using the words of discipleship. And you know what Jesus says? Uh-uh. You stay at home and go tell your family what God has done for you. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Jesus, Zacchaeus says, look, Jesus, uh, I encountered you. I reevaluated my life. I gave up. I gave half of everything up. And I corrected all of the wrongs that I did financially. Jesus is like, yes, half salvation has come to this house. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, these guys are significant because they're part of the religious ruling establishment. And if you know the gospels, you know like those are the bad guys. And they encounter Jesus and Jesus does not say, hey, ditch the Sadducees, ditch Jerusalem and come follow me. Jesus leaves them where they're at. And Joseph of Arimathea is actually the guy that gets Jesus' body from the cross. You see? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Deep, deep friends as best we can tell of Jesus. And, and also, the best we can tell scholarly, they're wealthy. Just because, just because of the clues in the Gospels, this is a well-off uh, brother and sister family. And Jesus never asked them to surrender their wealth. He stays with them and enjoys their hospitality in contrast to the rich young ruler. He comes up to Jesus and he says, how can I get into the kingdom? And he says, I've done all the commandments. And Jesus says, oh, then you just lack one thing. And he says, well, what's that? And he says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. Just one thing. Really, Jesus? And the rich young ruler goes away, he can't pay the price, right? But Jesus loves him. So look at this list. When it's a call into the unknown, like don't think that signing on to discipleship, like you might be called to sell everything you own and move to Africa and become a missionary. There's people from this community that have done that. You might be called to stay in the job that you don't really like too much because Jesus is like, that's your mission field. You might be called to foster a child. I don't know, I'm just brainstorming. Discipleship is a wonderfully creative experience, but you have to be willing to tolerate the unknown because it's a journey of faith. God, what's going on right now? What step am I taking next? Last thing is Jesus is full, following Jesus is full of revolutionary and explosive potential. Around here, we talk, about this, we talk about a term saying that uh, the greatest commandment that Jesus gives us is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as yourself. So I would say on one level, the call to discipleship is learning to do that. Learning to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as yourself. That's a tall order. Don't get me wrong. Another way you might think of it though is... Uh, you see, I know there are things in my life that I would say in my language, there are things in my life and in the world that would threaten to swallow me whole, that would consume my soul. Same thing for you. There are things in the world like addictions, are there not? There are things that, that if we dabble in them or if we are, are predisposed to them or if they capture them, capture us, they will sink your life, and they will sink my life. But I also believe 
that things like anger and greed and pride and self-centeredness and self-seeking, that those will sink my life as well if I let them fester. And discipleship is the only thing that I have that can help me transcend them. It is a gift of Jesus to say, if you follow me, I can sustain you through the things that would swallow your soul. And friends, I have not found another thing that will do it. Nothing. And in fact, it goes beyond that. Because if that's not enough, or if you wanna hear it, just put a different way. I'm just gonna offer you a few scripture references that show you what the potential for discipleship is. I think these are verses that we kind of listen, we read and we go, yeah, yeah, sure. But God probably didn't mean that. I believe the Bible. So in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, let's make human beings in our what? Image to be like us. They'll reign over the fish, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground. And then God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. So discipleship means that I can reclaim the image of God that he wanted to, to stamp on my soul. Discipleship means um, in Romans 12, Paul writes this, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. That's the belovedness, the gift he's given you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will accept this is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God what? Transform you into what? A new person. This means discipleship allows me to be available to the spirit of God to transform me into a new person. And there's enough about the old Eric you just don't wanna know. How about uh, 1 Corinthians 15? Paul writes this, just as we are now like the earthly man, Paul says, we will someday be like the heavenly man. Other manuscripts, Paul just declares it. He says, just as we were once like the earthly man, he's talking about Adam and this broken, a broken image bearer of God. Paul says, let's be like the new, the new guy right now. So there's both a thing where Paul's saying, look, it's gonna happen one day, but Paul's actually saying, you can happen right now. So that means discipleship means that I can be, I can start to live out my eternal existence with God. I can do that right now. I don't have to wait till I die. Who wants to wait till they die? Give me that now. Colossians 2, Paul writes this, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God. You know what all the fullness of God means? It means all the fullness of God. It lives in a human body. So you also are what? complete through your union with Christ, who's the head over every ruler. So that means discipleship. Jesus, I am in union with Jesus and I can be made complete. Now just think about those five verses. Image bearer of God, new person, the life that I'm gonna live with God forever, I can start it now. Complete. Folks, if I'm not making this clear, 
you can start the journey to be, to have the character of Jesus, the heart of Jesus now. But it all starts with this question. Are you willing to let Jesus lead you? Are you willing to just kind of throw everything up in the air and go, you know what? What I got ain't working so hot. So Jesus, take me somewhere. I don't care where. You say where, Jesus. And I'll follow. And I won't want the answers. And I won't just make this an intellectual thing. I'll make it a heart thing. I'll make it a body thing. And Jesus, I know you love me, so I'm not gonna try to earn your love through this. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let this thing grow up inside of me. That's where this is going. That's where it can go. And I would just challenge you, invite you. Take a moment, just say, Jesus, lead me. I'll give you 40 days, Jesus. Jesus can do a lot in 40 days. If you just throw yourself into it. Say, here's my heart. Take it, God.